Hello, Jeroen. Hello, Dylan. And once again, today we've got a special guest with us here to talk about a very cool library called Elm Tailwind Modules. Philip, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Uh, do you want to give us a, a brief intro, you know, what you do, where you work? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, so up until recently, I guess, I've been a student uh, in Karlsruhe at KIT, um, but I started working uh, for Fission last year in uh, July. And yeah, since then, I've been freelancing and starting this year, early this year, uh, I've become a, well, now part-time, but soon full-time employee of Fission. Mm -hmm. And there I'm writing Elm for all of the core applications. Awesome. And you were, were you doing some research at the university as well? You were, you were pretty, pretty in on a lot of like the deep dive category theory stuff and a lot of those things when, when I last talked to you. Yeah. Uh, so, well, most of the deep dive category stuff is from conversations and yeah, lots of uh, uh, thoughts with, uh, together with my brother and I guess self-study a little bit. So that's where I guess I picked up that and we were trying stuff. We also tried to start up something, but that was really early. And and other than that, I was also doing some research in the university, like officially. Um, and that was, for example, my bachelor's thesis, Elm Reduce, which maybe mm -hmm. some of you know. Mm -hmm. And yeah. yeah, so that was something else I've been doing in Elm, uh, which was not totally hobby or side project um, before. That's awesome. Yeah, the topic that we invited you for is uh, Elm Tailwind modules. So maybe uh, give us a brief intro to what Tailwind is and then what mm -hmm. Elm Tailwind modules is. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> no one has really figured out how to do styling in the web today yet, I guess. It feels like it feels like that at least. So yeah, uh, Tailwind is this utility first CSS framework, which is how they describe themselves, uh, which means that instead of trying to structure your uh, CSS using lots of uh, class selectors and complicated selectors, you simply use small snippets of uh, reusable CSS, I guess, in your HTML. So you have lots more, lots more changes in your HTML than you have in your CSS. Your CSS then gets only generated by like a configuration file, a Tailwind configuration file with all of the colors and spacings you use. And then you end up using only uh, classes when writing HTML. Yeah. So it's it looks like uh, inline CSS, but instead of uh, applying specific properties like color uh, is red, you say uh, you, you apply class saying red or exactly uh, font red, background red, stuff like that. Yeah. It's almost like a CSS class-based API. It's like you're calling API functions to style HTML elements by applying classes. Yeah. And at the beginning, you think, oh, this is so limiting. I mean, how would you, for example, use another color? But most of the time, by limiting your options, by only having certain spacings available, like a set of maybe 16 different uh, spacings, you end up having really, how's it called? Consistent. Yeah, consistent uh, user interfaces with yeah consistent spacings and not lots of different spacings. Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the features that makes Tailwind a really nice experience to work with and allows you to create really nice experiences on the web because it kind of has this built-in concept of a palette. So you have like a palette of colors. So you have like, mm -hmm. you know, BG, red, 500, 
would be like the built-in default color palette they give you. But the intended way to use it is really to define your own palette. So you have, you can define a primary color or secondary or however you name them, define those colors. And then it generates these CSS classes for you to do BG primary or BG secondary or whatever your colors are called. And that, you know, so it gives you this palette for, like you said, spacing, for colors, and for breakpoints. So you can define your palette of breakpoints. And those constraints, those limited selections in the palette, really make it so much easier to create nice experiences for, for your web design. Yeah. And at the beginning, when I was uh, starting with, uh, or when I first looked at Tailwind CSS, I was thinking, hmm, uh, is this how CSS is meant to be used? Uh, but after I tried, I tried a lot with my blog and I experimented a little bit with uh, different ways of using CSS. First using plain old CSS, then using LUI, and then using SCSS, SAS, yeah. Uh, and finally, um, converging on Tailwind CSS. And I really felt like, for example, the SaaS-based version was hard to maintain because if I was making a change to the layout of my blog, uh, I ended up having to go into my CSS and change it again and never really knowing how the CSS and the HTML are coupled together. So is the CSS selector even uh, active anymore? I don't know. And it's really hard to check. Um, so like in this way, I've never felt like the way CSS is I, I, I mean, meant to be used, I guess, was really working for me. Right. And then you have this like layer of indirection for like the um, selectors that you write in your CSS style sheets using, you know, the kind of traditional way of writing CSS. And you don't know what unintended consequences are going to come from changing a CSS selector somewhere or changing the style somewhere. So you have this like with this like utility based approach, you have this like localized reasoning benefit where, you know, if you change the CSS classes, the tailwind classes that are being applied to one element, you know, it's not going to have, you know, an effect on some spooky effect at a distance on some other element, which is similar to the feeling of using Elm UI in a way. It can still have an effect on the uh, children of the elements, right? Like the, if you set the uh, color to be red on an element, all the children of that will be read. So yeah, there's CSS inheritance. So some properties are inheritable and children inherit these properties, but I don't and don't know which ones are exactly inheritable. Okay, I didn't figure I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it's true for example for text and font sizes and color uh, not colors but font fonts in general. Uh, they all get inherited, but that's still true with with Tailwind CSS. Yeah. Okay, and I never got that uh, distinction of uh, inheritable and not inheritable properties. Good, good to know. Yeah. So, for example, display flex is something that just is just set on like the element mm. you set it on, and not on children. Right. And if you apply padding, you know, if you say padding, you know, p two or p x two for padding horizontal two, uh, if you apply that tailwind class, it's not going to change the padding for any of the child elements. It's just the parent element that's going to have that padding applied. So you can. Think locally about a lot of those utility classes, but you know it's it's different than if you you know go in and change something in your CSS style sheet, and you say you change the padding on a particular type of element, a particular type of selector. You don't know what that's going to affect. But when you say you know px two, 
you know it's going to apply to the thing you're saying, that HTML tag that you're applying it to. Yes, exactly. And if you, uh, for example, had this more complicated selector, which actually selected something in your HTML, and you had another place you were thinking of changing the structure of your HTML, you end up looking into your CSS and wondering, can I just change the selector? But changing the selector is so dangerous, or at least it feels like that. And you end up copying your uh, whole definition and changing the selector then. And so you end up with duplicate CSS. And to me, that feels a lot like the symptoms of premature optimization, I'd say. So you optimize, uh, not optimization, but abstraction, premature abstract. So you abstracted something, but ended up feeling like you needed to tweak it a little bit, and then you duplicate it. And so you defeated the purpose of abstracting in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and sometimes these like CSS selector abstractions can be very awkward to think about. You know, it's like if something has this CSS class, and then it's the immediate child of that which is a span or you know whatever <laughs> then it's going to have this styling applied right so you're trying to figure out why is this styling not applied and the abstraction is you know you can easily end up just applying a bunch of these rules that don't have a clean abstraction and then you're stuck with them because you don't know what you're going to break if you change it in the future whereas if you're using utility classes you're just sort of like uh the padding seems off on this element. Uh, I'm just going to remove this utility class here. And you know it's not going to break anything else and it, because it's not applying this abstraction where anything that follows this structure, where it has this class and then it has this following CSS selector within that is going to get this styling applied. Mm -hmm. And I also think most or a lot of that has to do with, I think there was this concept of uh, cohesion and, oh, I forgot this. Coupling? Coupling, I think, yeah. And mm -hmm. so if two things are mm -hmm. tightly coupled, they should be in a place close to each other. But exactly. if you end up uh, having like CSS in a totally different file than HTML, it becomes difficult. It's easier to just delete both, I guess, uh, if you have them in, in a similar place, like it is when you use CSS utility class. Yeah, I totally agree. Like separating things is not inherently good. It doesn't inherently make the code easier to reason about. If you've separated two things that are intimately connected and need to be understood together to make sense of the whole, separating them actually makes it harder to understand. So that's why you want the cohesion. And so I, I completely agree. Like utility classes give you more cohesion when compared to using CSS selectors in a style sheet. So you were writing code with Tailwind CSS and you start applying these utility classes and you're thinking, this is pretty cool, but wait a minute, it's not type safe. What if I type a Tailwind class incorrectly? I wouldn't get a compiler error. <laughs> exactly. So uh, there I was writing my log and I haven't made the refactor yet, but uh, so if you look code up, uh, it's all class names inside of strings and you've got a couple of weeks so <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> no pressure thinking about stuff in my backlog <laughs> okay so yeah uh, i have uh, these these uh, strings full of css classes and what if i make a typo so yeah i end up wondering why does my css not get applied um or what if i tweak my css configuration like my tailwind uh, config file and it generates different class names and i end up 
changing the class names almost everywhere, but forget one place. It silently fails. So this is not ideal. Uh, and there's been solutions in the Elm community. For example, I should look it up. Uh, it's Dean's project. Um, mm-hmm. But I... Monty5811 Pussy's <laughs> Elm Tailwind? Exactly. Um, okay, it's a little on, bit yeah. hard to remember name, I'd say. Um, but yes, exactly. I, I just read it. And <laughs> I read it. In my memory. Nice, exactly. And in that project, that project solves the issue of, well, incorrect class names um, appearing somewhere silently uh, without failing. So how does it do that? Uh, It takes your CSS, looks at uh, the generated CSS, uh, the CSS generated by Tailwind, uh, looks at all the class names that appear in there and creates an Elm definition, which is basically just an alias for the type class. Yeah, so you end up importing this generated CSS file, and if the definition you're, or the yeah the CSS in quotation definition uh, doesn't uh, exist, so it's just a plain Elm value, the Elm compiler will tell you, hey, uh, you're referencing something that doesn't exist. Yeah, so you either need to recompile to get the the updated class name, or it just doesn't exist at all, and you should probably fix this bug. Yes, exactly. We do a lot of work in the Elm community to to not be afraid of typos, don't, don't <laughs> we? <laughs> Types without borders. Yeah, Elm Are... is really safe. You can do so many refactorings in Elm. Is oh, the... but what if you do typos? Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> is the Elm community just paranoid? <laughs> maybe, maybe, <laughs> just maybe. We don't we trust ourselves? <laughs> no, I don't. Absolutely not. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> so what was the problem with uh, Monty's pro- uh, project? Uh, why didn't you just use that one? I did use that one. Well, at least for work-related things. Uh, that's mm-hmm. what we use at Fission. Oh, we still use at Fission. Well, and also another version of it, but <laughs> <laughs> I guess let's uh, keep it short. Uh, details, yeah. The thing I was noticing when using Monty's Tailwind Generation project was that it created pretty big Elm files. Um, at one point, I ended up with a 300,000 lines of code Elm file because I was using all of the Tailwind utilities plus two plug- plugins in Tailwind, uh, the typography plugin and the uh, Tailwind UI plugin. I, I think I think I, I used it to stress uh, stress test the performance of Elm Review, just by the way. <laughs> it, it, it took like five seconds to parse, so it's not... <laughs> it, it's really big. It's really big. Exactly. So for, for people who, who might be wondering why, it's Tailwind uses a sort of brute force approach to generate every permutation of all of these different variations. So if you have your color palette, so if you have like 20 colors, and then you have your breakpoints, and then you have your, you know, spacing, you know, it's, it's going to create for every breakpoint and for every color, it's going to create every type of padding, padding X for all of the different, you know, or, well, I guess you don't have padding for colors, but it's going to create every, you know, BG color for every breakpoint. So if you have like the medium breakpoint, it's going to be like MD colon BG dash red dash 500. Yeah. And it's going to generate every permutation of all of these different possibilities mixed together, which is essentially emulating almost like calling an API and saying like, okay, for this breakpoint, pass in this argument of this color for background uh, background color or something, right? But it's it's doing it through CSS classes. So it just 
brute force generates every permutation and it's a combinatoric explosion. And then the way Tailwind deals with that is it uses something called purge CSS, which uses like regex to go through your source code, find all the CSS classes that are used and strip out from the CSS all the ones you don't use to have a reasonably sized CSS bundle in production. So that didn't work well for the Elm compiler and output. It didn't like that. Well, I don't think the the Elm compiler was actually surprisingly fast. It wasn't the bottleneck, at least. It was more my tooling, which seemed to uh, slow down a lot more when I was using projects with generated Elm modules, which were that big. Yeah, I, I think I remember VS Code slowing down pretty yes. heavily, at least. Yeah. yeah. There's been lots of uh, improvements, though. Uh, I've used these files uh, to do more debugging in uh, <laughs> VS Code, actually. Nice. Not much, but uh, a little bit. And we, uh, or they figured out some improvements um, to it. So that was nice. Uh, still, it uh, yeah, slowed down my, um, my tooling a lot. And in September last year, I saw one project, uh, which was PostCSS Elm Tailwind. No, wait. PostCSS Tailwind Elm CSS? PostCSS Elm CSS Tailwind from Justin Ray. Exactly. You've got all, all of the links uh, prepared. Nice. <laughs> this is this turns into some kind of bingo uh, of me trying to pronounce This the... is our special Christmas episode again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That project uh, from Justin. And uh, he had this genius idea of using um, Elm CSS and transforming all of the CSS that Tailwind would generate... <laughs> and transform the generated CSS into generated Elm code uh, in a way so you can just throw away the CSS again. Just use the generated Elm code. So there's Elm CSS, which lets you define CSS within Elm, kind of similar and inspired to JS, uh, CSS in JS. And um, he was using that to uh, yeah, define an Elm file which contained all of the properties uh, um, that would be defined in uh, the Tailwind CSS file. Uh, and have a neat Elm definition for each of the utility classes then. Mm -hmm. Right. So, And I think he, he also had this innovation where it could be more composable to put those pieces together, right? Because you had, instead of having a single, like, so, you know, like I was saying before, like, conceptually, Tailwind is essentially a hack to give you an API through CSS classes, where, you know, you can say at the medium breakpoint, uh, on hover, the background color of this button should be blue. And so it generates MD colon hover colon BG dash blue or, you know, whatever. But, effect, you know, conceptually, it's an API that you're passing in a bunch of arguments to these functions. Um, and, well, that's sort of what Justin Rassier had as his innovation was that you could actually generate Elm code that composes those things together to give you the CSS class names. Is, is that the idea behind his library? Exactly. And mm -hmm. like one of the examples I was having at work was we use dark mode. So we ended up having just twice as much CSS and Elm uh, code, therefore. Right. right. And, but what we you would do in Elm CSS was just define another uh, function, which would be called maybe dark, and it would just wrap your CSS you was you were using with a media query, which queries for prefers dark, uh, pre which queries for prefers color theme dark, and you don't have to add anything else. So it's just one more definition instead of doubling all of your definitions. That's awesome. So so it's using 
Elm CSS under the hood as well, right? This library here? Yes. Not as well. This one does and uh, Monty's didn't. Oh, right. I meant compared to Philip's oh, library. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. Both true. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we talked about, you know, the pain points with Monty's having, you know, generated code that was difficult for tooling to parse. What was the what was the reason that made you want to build something? What were the pain points of using Justin Rassier's approach? Justin's project was not complete uh, at the point I was uh, trying to use it. So I was trying to use it with, uh, for example, the Tailwind CSS um, plugins like the typography plugin or the UI, UI plugin, but it ended up not generating correct Elm code. And so I was trying to, um, I was taking his project and uh, making changes to it. And while I was while I was doing that, I was thinking of more architectural improvements to it, I guess. And in the end, it happened to be, I guess, more of a coincidence that I did not that I forked this project instead of really contributing to it. I was tr- planning on switching to another Elm library, so instead of using Elm CSS, I was thinking about using Elm Origami, um, which is some not well known at all. Elm project, which is again a fork of Elm CSS. <laughs> so I guess we're like uh, getting into the red lines uh, on the wall kind of thing here. <laughs> I know the meme you're referring to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, so accidents happened. Um, I ended up significantly uh, reworking uh, his um, project, but starting out from his and yeah, making changes to it. Uh, switching the code generation from plain JavaScript to TypeScript, changing it from, yeah, doing doing internal changes and adding more features so it became possible to, for example, use generated uh, C- uh, Tailwind CSS with plugins. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So the plugins and the, you know, customization of the palette is really cool because you you tweak your Tailwind config and you you change your palette, you change your color palette to have your primary and secondary instead of the built-in blue 500, blue 600. And now it's generating these uh, these palettes for you and reducing your options. So like, let's talk a little bit about what the experience now feels like using your Elm Tailwind modules tool. So you So it's built on Elm CSS under the hood. So under the hood, it's just giving you Elm CSS code that's actually defining the, the same CSS that Tailwind would. So you don't actually have a CSS file with the built-in permutations of every possible Tailwind class. There are actually no Tailwind classes in your code when you use your Elm Tailwind modules tool. Yes. So the fastest way to check out this project would be just to use some, I guess, pre-compiled or pre-generated Elm code, which I uploaded to the Elm packages directory. I think the package is called Matthews23 slash Elm default tailwind modules. And in there, yeah, there's just is. two files with uh, two modules with lots of definitions. It's basically the generated code. And then you'd use Elm HTML, just like you're used to. And there is one more HTML attribute you can use because of Elm CSS, which is the CSS attribute it takes a list of parameters and there you can just import these definitions and ins- uh, insert them there and it'll apply them like if you were applying a list of classes. It feels similar at least. By the way, why does why does the Elm CSS API have that CSS function? So you've got so 
Elm CSS. There are like a lot of things to define for this episode, but it's uh, once you get into the flow of using it, it uh, it doesn't feel overwhelming. But there are a lot of concepts to introduce. So with Elm CSS, it's a drop-in replacement for Elm HTML. Essentially, um, it, it aims to be that plus then a superset with with the added features. So then, if you have like an anchor tag if you have you know with elm html you would do an anchor tag with just a and then list of attributes and then list of children and the list of attributes you can do html.attributes.href and then you can add html.attributes.style and you can add inline styles so i guess elm css it would look exactly the same except your imports would be different instead of importing html you import styled.html as html or something like that and you still have a for the anchor tag you still have the list of attributes and the list of children but now in the list of attributes you can include uh, you can call the css function which then takes a list of styles so i guess that would be like the alternative to doing html.attributes.style background red you would do css list of css attributes and then you would do css dot background and then css.rgb25500 or something like that yeah and the value of that is again not to have typo errors right yeah. right the goal the goal of rt feldman slash elm css is to give you a drop-in replacement library for elm html that adds css styling utilities that give you a type safe api for doing css it's not attempting to be you know, giving you a simplified way of expressing things like Elm UI. It's just like, you want to use CSS? Here's a, a type safe, high level Elm API for doing exactly CSS. It's not trying to change how you interact with CSS, except for making it type safe. So then within that CSS uh, attribute that you can, you can include in your list of attributes, you can have a list of CSS styles to apply. Now you can, um, you can use those because it's regular Elm CSS, but now you have these little generated definitions from your from Elm Tailwind modules. So you can use the, the generated modules, which are tailwind.utilities and tailwind.breakpoints. And those give you helper functions that you can use within that list of CSS, Elm CSS styles. Yeah, exactly. And they're composable too. So like what that would look like if you were saying in dark mode for a, you know, at the medium breakpoint I want to have a blue background, then what that would look like is CSS, and then it's a list of Elm CSS attributes. And then you would say dark, and then you give a list of dark attributes. And then you would say tailwind.utilities. Or no, sorry, tailwind.breakpoints.medium or .md. And then you'd give a list of things for that, which it sounds like overwhelming that it's a list of lists of lists, but really it's just this composable thing, which is really what Tailwind is attempting to emulate, is the experience of composing together these different utilities. And it does that by a combinatoric explosion of every permutation being generated as a CSS class. But this is actually the ideal that it's striving to emulate, which is it's just functions and you can... And since it's composable, you can now do programmatic things with that, where you, you can kind of pass around things and compose them together through code. Or abstract them, or make your own small definitions with a group or a list of uh, CSS you want to apply. For example, 
I have this uppercase button style in my project uh, that I reuse. Yeah. And where you would before use some special CSS syntax that, that is added by uh, Tailwind in using post CSS, you can now use Elm definitions and have your type save Elm code back. Uh, let me just get this straight. So Justin and Monty, which, whose name is actually Dean. Uh, I think so, before. yes. Yeah, uh, so Justin and Dean's uh, solution were to generate functions that alias the Tailwind classes. But since, yeah? Not, the, the... No, 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 that, not quite. It's, it's the case for Monty's project, but it wasn't the case for Justin's project. Justin already um, didn't only alias the um, definitions, but kind of like inlined the um, styles. So he was actually generating, for example, mx underscore auto equals... And then CSS.batch of margin left something auto and margin right auto, for example. Yeah, because he was also targeting Elm CSS. So with Elm CSS, use the CSS function, which takes styles, uh, which does not take classes. So if you want to pass in Tailwind utilities to that, you need to have them translated to properties, right? So that's what you generate with your project and yes. what Justin also did. Yes. Mm -hmm. So my project uh, is, in, in the idea, the same as uh, Justin's. Uh, <laughs> I just picked up the, the project and actually his code base, uh, modified it, improved it, and added to it until I felt it was ready for some of my projects I wanted to use in. So uh, we mentioned before that Tailwind uses uh, Purge CSS to do dead code elimination. Um, so what it did was... Uh, as Dylan said, use a regex to find all, all CSS classes in your code base, which may have some false positives, uh, false negatives, I guess. Wait, don't regexes just work perfectly every time and never have any issues? Well, yeah, except <laughs> with typos. No. <laughs> I guess it so, can be both. Yeah. There's like the issue of what if you use some code to generate a class name? So what if you were doing the kind of abstraction of... Uh, yeah, I don't want to uh, write this color name like this. I want to abstract my, I guess, color from my uh, border radius, uh, border border color, mm -hmm. and right. <laughs> you split if up you your string. If you strings. Mm -hmm. Exactly. If you split up your string, your string won't be found uh, by purge CSS, and some classes will go missing, and mm -hmm. you, they won't be included in your production build. And that might be hard to debug. Which, as you said, it's actually desirable in, in many cases to programmatically create like a composable way of defining something. And so you, you actually, that's not purge CSS friendly. So having a, an actual generated programmatic API for this is really desirable. If you don't want to purge CSS, the result. You essentially have to. I think it's like over a megabyte. The default generated Tailwind CSS uh, asset, I think it's over a megabyte, maybe even several megabytes. I think you quickly get uh, in the megabyte range if you have the certain variants enabled and dark mode and stuff like that. Right, because if you add dark mode, now it's applying something for every other class that existed. So it literally mm -hmm. just doubles yeah. the classes, right? So if you had one megabyte, now it's two megabytes. Of course, minification might reduce that. But even so, minification, even if it's minified and the minified asset is not twice as big strictly, you still have to parse and interpret all of those CSS classes once you've decompressed it. Plus you have to actually decompress it. So it's a lot of work for, for the browser engine to do that you, you want to avoid. You, essentially, it's, I would say it's necessary 
to purge CSS with, yeah. with vanilla Tailwind. But I mean, we, you can't use purge CSS if you do that concatenation. Yes. But even just if you don't do purge CSS, if you want yourself to find the CSS classes that you don't use anymore in your Elm code, just finding it manually in your editor, that becomes a problem. In, in your case, you don't need to do that anymore. Yes. So right now we don't generate any more CSS files, um, or at least it is possible to do this without <laughs> generating CSS files, or on that maybe later. Mm -hmm. And you can rely on just your Elm code and the Elm compiler in turn uh, with the minus minus optimize flag will remove every function that it can't be called or won't be called by your Elm program. So it does dead code elimination and all of the classes you won't use in your Elm app, they won't uh, appear in your generated Elm code because Elm figures out their dead code. Yeah, yeah, that's really clever. I, I love I love how that, that design all just kind of works out. I, I don't remember, is it the Elm compiler that removes those functions or is it the minifier? It's uh, actually the Elm compiler. So okay. What the Elm compiler does is just take your main function and look at all of the functions that are referenced by the main function, and then in turn look at all the functions referenced by them. So it yeah. basically just, mm -hmm. and it takes them and includes them in the generated bundle instead of like removing stuff. It just takes everything that is uh, reachable code and transforms it and compiles it. Yeah, it doesn't eliminate code. It just pulls only what it needs. Also, the you know the number of um like the amount of code that's being generated is not a combinatoric explosion because the code you're generating is these composable helpers. So it's not that for um, for each variant of dark mode, you need to generate a class for each variant of breakpoint and you, for each variant within that of color. You actually just generate a function, you know, tailwind.breakpoints.md, tailwind.breakpoints.sm, and those are generating functions that compose together and and apply the the media queries for those breakpoints, which is really really cool, and it it makes it so much nicer to work with. And I know uh, on on the roadmap, Philip, you've got um, that you want to work on trying to to take that a step further and actually extract out colors to be composable in that way as well. Yes, exactly. So at the moment, you have lots of uh, definitions for, for example, background color. And then you say BG, BG underscore red underscore 700, for example. And the red underscore 700 part is your color name. And, tail and it's taken from your Tailwind configuration. And Tailwind will just uh, generate a class name or in this case, in the end, a definition for each of your colors. And the idea is to only generate one definition, which will then be bg underscore color, and it will take another para parameter, which would then be, for example, red underscore 700, which would then be its own definition. So this way, um, instead of having like background color, border color, text color, and all of them, and each of them being defined for every of your colors defined in your Tailwind configuration, you end up only needing one definition for text, background, and border color, and all of your colors once. So this is the, the end goal. And That would probably reduce the, the size of the compiled code also, right? Exactly. This would be 
even smaller code. At the moment, we don't generate variants. So if you like uh, generate these sm underscore underscore definitions for the small breakpoint, uh, then my tool will spit out a warning and say, please just turn on vari off variants. It makes your code a lot shorter. So And you can use uh, Elm CSS to do the same. So use that. And this would be another way to make it even less code. Yeah, I was just searching for the hover function because I know that Tailwind has that, but you're actually just using CSS.hover from Elm CSS. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And same thing for the breakpoints. Uh, so, you... the, mm -hmm. so the breakpoints are actually configured in Tailwind in the Tailwind configuration. So I use those breakpoint uh, configurations to generate another file with your standard breakpoints, so to say. And another file? Yeah, this oh, is the... Another module. Exactly, another module. Mm -hmm. So that's the tailwind.breakpoints module. Uh, and it contains then, for example, in the standards or default tailwind configuration, it contains uh, a function named sm, md, lg for the small, medium, and large uh, breakpoints and more. And they take, in turn, just a list of styles to apply when you're at this kind of breakpoint. It's not perfect right now. There's one thing uh, that I really don't know how to fix. And this is something that Justin um, stumbled upon too, and which is kind of difficult to handle. Tailwind CSS actually... So you have to be careful with the order of your styles when you write them down. So you need, uh, with the Elm Tailwind modules projects, you need to order your breakpoints from big to small if you're using min-width breakpoints. So that means so that means if you don't honor this order, you'll end up having some styles override other styles in cases you don't you might not be used to when using Tailwind CSS. And this can be really surprising, and this is due to the fact that Tailwind CSS relies on the generated Tailwind to have a certain order of definitions. So that the, I think, first definition that applies in the CSS file will be the one that the browser actually uses. Either the first or the last, I don't actually remember. And this, yeah, this is kind of unfortunate and I don't really know uh, how to solve this issue yet. But There might be some way to use a clever set of helper functions and combination of that with the generated code where you could have like, instead of the CSS, which takes a list of the CSS uh, properties or styles you could have like a special tailwind one and you could have some special type instead of just being a direct css property you could have it be something that has like you know a tuple where one of the pieces of information is ordering information so if it's a breakpoint or if it's no breakpoint determines the order and then it applies those when you compose them together but it's it's a challenging it's a challenging technical difficulty there Yes, and again, I have to give props to Justin there because he took a stab at solving this issue and wrote a generated function. So he added a function to the generated code, uh, which would actually take a list of tuples. So for each breakpoint, you can define a list of styles and then it would order the um, breakpoints automatically. And I think that was a step in the right direction. It just felt a little bit too clunky and a little bit too verbose for my taste and it and there's like the question of how do you want to group your code if you for example have a, a list of states uh, styles to apply when 
you're hovering an element and you want to have this list of styles change when you have another breakpoint. So you're thinking about which one is wrapped around the other. Uh, but yeah, so it's, mm -hmm. I'm not entirely sure how yeah. to do that yet. It certainly makes it less composable. And then if you wanted to do like CSS.batch, which is a, a, a function that comes with Elm CSS that allows you to group together multiple styles, now they would, wouldn't be styles, they would be tuples. And so you couldn't use things like CSS.batch. Like that's part of the beauty of this approach is that you're just generating these Elm CSS properties. And so uh, you can compose them together and use them just like a first class citizen in Elm CSS. I, I wonder if there would be some sort of like post-processing that could be done like with, with Elm review or something that you could have it order things. The, the problem is if you're using, if you're calling out to functions and things like that, it could become difficult if you're concatenating lists and things like that. Yeah, that's always the, the problem with static analysis. My thinking is that instead of uh, having every property be a CSS style, you could probably have an intermediate type. And then when you try to transform it into a CSS property, then you do all the nice things. And maybe if you do that, you can also make it work for Elm HTML, but that would be a bit more tricky because of how the CSS classes are handled. Oh, maybe not. You could fork Elm CSS and make a drop-in replacement for Elm CSS, and that would allow you to include extra pieces of metadata in your CSS styles. That would actually probably solve the problem pretty nicely. But then now you have, like, this is something that sometimes happens in the Elm ecosystem is, like, you have... Like, this is a drop-in replacement for this. This is a drop-in replacement for this. It's like Elm Accessible HTML, and then there's Elm CSS. And well, what if you want to use Elm CSS with Accessible HTML? They don't really compose because you keep, like, creating these drop-in replacements for things. Absolutely, yes. And this is something I was thinking about, but exactly. I don't want to make yet another competing project, I guess, which is not compatible. And I think... Uh, I didn't think of uh, Jeroen's idea, actually, which I think is a good, probably a really good idea um, to have... I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> this uh, intermediary library, I guess, um, which would allow you to sort your definitions by some kind of internal key, and that would solve the issue. The solution is always to add more types. <laughs> yeah, I think there's like this one quote, every problem in computer science can be solved by another layer of indirection. Except the problem of too many layers of indirection. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> Except performance problems. So what would be the reasons for using Elm UI or using Tailwind? Or any other variants like Elm HTML? Yeah, so I think like at the very core, Elm UI and Elm uh, or, or Tailwind are solving similar issues, um, which is trying to make the developer experience of using styling applications on, in the web better. Um, so then, yeah, it's the question, when do you use one or the other? And I think MUI is really useful for people who don't know or don't want to know or don't have to know how to use CSS yet, because it really is much simpler, though I haven't used it much, I have to say. There, are, when I started, for example, writing my blog, I was thinking about using LMUI, and it was, and it is the default for Elm Pages, the Elm Pages starter right now, right? That's true. I, I actually have a an Elm Pages Tailwind starter repo, but it's uh, out of date, and I'm planning to update it to use Elm Tailwind. Oh modules. yes. Mm -hmm. Great. <laughs> yeah. But there's, for example, uh, there's some benefits to using CSS compared to LMUI, which would be, for example, 
the way you can use media queries for different device sizes and I guess some smaller things would be like newer features in CSS, uh, which have to be added in LMUI first. Like CSS like, Grid, for example. Exactly, CSS Grid, or I don't know, like things like Focus Within or uh, stuff like that. Maybe uh, I'm not sure, maybe I'm wrong here and uh, this is actually already implemented. But yeah, CSS Grid for, would be an example. So when I was using, uh, when I was writing my blog, I was also thinking about this question, should I use Tailwind or should I use MUI? And it ended up being Tailwind because I need this, the breakpoints to work correctly and without JavaScript in that case. So with media queries. Yeah, I'll give I'll give my personal experience report uh, as, as somebody who's, Who's used both a fair amount? I've I've done a lot of Elm UI. I've done I've done a lot of Tailwind, and so with Tailwind, some of the things that that are kind of challenging coming from Elm UI are that you do have to think about CSS and and not pretend it doesn't exist. You can pretend that certain parts of CSS don't exist, which is great, and it's in general a way smoother experience than than what I've had personally trying to just write you know CSS files and SCSS files. But, but you still have to understand CSS and how things work, right? You do. You still have to understand Flex and Flex Grow and Flex Shrink and uh, Item Center and Justify Around or, you know, all of these things. You have to, and I find myself constantly having to look them up. The Tailwind CSS documentation is great, but Elm UI has like a clean slate and it can say, okay, if we were to imagine CSS from scratch, what terms would we use to describe these things? And it's beautiful. You know, you don't have to like remember the to put flex in the right place and you just say spacing on the parent and it's it's beautiful. The pain points using Elm UI for me have been one of the most important things for making a polished professional web design is having it be very mobile friendly and responsive. And I've found that to be very difficult to do with Elm UI in my personal experience, because a couple of things. One, I, um, I want it to pre-render nicely, which there's just no, no story for in Elm UI at the moment. Um, at, at some point there may be, but right now there's no way to do that using media queries, which means it's not going to pre-render well, which we discussed on our Elm UI episode. And the second thing is you have to like wire through state of the current browser dimensions uh, in a lot of places to do it. And I, I just prefer a more declarative way of saying, at this breakpoint, do this, at this breakpoint, do this. So Tailwind is amazing for that. Tailwind is amazing at having like a palette of options and being able to just, uh, that's just a feature that's baked into Tailwind and it works very nicely with Elm Tailwind modules. So that's a killer feature. That's not something that is impossible to do in Elm UI. And at some point, maybe we'll have a cool tool for like building a palette, which would be great. Also, uh, Minibill, Leonardo, built a package that wraps Elm UI. Again, it's a drop-in replacement that <laughs> does a slight twist on something. And what it does is it allows you to have state that you can call into without passing arguments through every place that you're calling your Elm UI functions. So you can have state like the current you know, width to do conditional breakpoints and, and things like that. So that alleviates that pain point a little bit, but still it doesn't pre-render nicely. But the other killer feature of Tailwind CSS is Tailwind UI. Tailwind UI is like a paid like component library of these copy-pastable snippets of Tailwind 
HTML with CSS classes. And it is so easy to make like professional landing pages and application designs using that. And that's one of the killer features, I would say, of using Tailwind in general. But that is not compatible with uh, what uh, Philip did because you, you can't take that uh, Tailwind UI and put it into your Elm project, right? Yeah, not, it's... not directly. So it's just HTML with uh, CSS class references in strings. Uh, so you can use it like uh, as a drop-in. But... But, well, yeah, right. So it's just it's just these templates, basically, right? It's just templates of HTML code. And I... Uh, so when I was building the Elm, elmtsinterrupt.com landing page, I built it with Elm Tailwind modules, which was an amazing experience. I was very pleased. And I discovered that I was copy pasting and uh, you know tweaking the the Tailwind UI templates, HTML templates, so often that I would save myself time if I built a tool that automatically parsed them. So I built uh, I built a tool which uh, is at uh, HTML2Elm.com, and it has the ability to parse Tailwind CSS classes and give you the same format that the generated code from Elm Tailwind modules uses. So so all you do is you, you know, copy paste your template from from tailwindui.com and it will give you something that you can just paste into your uh, Elm Tailwind modules project and it just works and it's quite nice. And I built an Elm review rule which maybe will be pu- hopefully it'll be published by the time this episode is released which allows you to do debug.todo and then you can do a triple quote string and paste in that HTML template from Tailwind UI, and it just generates all of the code that is now going to be compiling working Elm Tailwind modules code. So it definitely saved me time in the process of building it, or at least was more fun than (laughs) manually going in and doing that. That's a more truthful answer. I can relate. (laughs) And I have to thank Dylan that in the future when I'm using Tailwind UI components, I'm going to have more fun because... yes. I won't have to, uh, yeah, fiddle with the HTML and transform it into Elm code and then fiddle with the classes and transform them to Tailwind utility classes. And that's great. Yeah, I didn't get that you did this for Tailwind UI. But when you started talking about it, it was, oh, yep, that makes sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it even uh, it even will do things like, you know, if you have um, hover colon BG blue, right, then it's it's actually going to create CSS that says CSS.hover, not tailwind.utilities.hover, because that's how it's generated. So it handles all of those special cases and gives you compiling code. It definitely enhances the experience. It, it just, like, it's no fun to, like, have in the middle of your workflow to have to go manually tweak a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So just to clarify, it's html2elm.com separated by dashes. So html-2-elm. Yep. Com. Yes, we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. So did we answer the question about Elm UI versus Tailwind? Ah, right. I remember I w- wanted to say something about that. I think ultimately I'm having like dreams of uh, there being the ultimate Elm UI in the end because I see lots of similarities uh, between Tailwind and Elm UI, even if like you have to flinch a lot. There is things like, for example, the spacing utility in Tailwind, which where you just use space underscore x underscore 8, for example, and it'll add, I think, yeah, 32 pixels of spacing between your children elements. And 
I guess this is something similar to using a row or column in LMUI and adding the spacing modifier. And it's an abstraction over CSS. So in the end, it's both is actually CSS code, but you're using the same API. So they are having similarities. And if you start to abstract, if you start to abstract Elm Tailwind modules, like what I'm planning in the future, it's going to be even similar when you're using background color and just putting in a color you have defined somewhere else. It's going to start to look very similar. And it makes me dream of this ultimate <laughs> MUI, I guess, uh, which has all of this, these features and maybe works with media queries. And, and then in the end, maybe you don't even have to think about Flexbox anymore and how s stretching and growing and shrinking works. And I think that would be, that's, that's something awesome. So I think of Tailwind and Elm Tailwind modules more as a compromise between having all of the, in quotes, advanced features uh, available today, but moving into the same direction or, <laughs> but approaching from a very different angle that LMUI does. Yeah. I think that makes a ton of sense. Like one one concrete example of, of how you might translate that, that just to give people an idea of what that experience might feel like would be um, instead of having, you know, tailwind.utilities.flex, which is actually just display flex under the hood, you would not generate tailwind.utilities.flex, but instead you would have a function, you know, and it would be like for, for a flex tag. Although that does become interesting now because uh, then now you get into the same thing as Elm UI, right? Where Elm UI separates the notion of like containers and their markup. So if something uh, is, is the term in Elm UI is a region. So if the region is main or nav bar, that's like the semantics and the semantics are separated from the styling. So you would you would have to get into that territory a little, which, I mean, there's really no reason that you couldn't, that you couldn't take that same direction of having uh, having it be an attribute to define the region, the semantics of the HTML elements. But if you have an API like that, now flex becomes something where, like, you say, okay, flex, and you can create this nice experience where you can define within that the different variants that you could have for centering things and having the spacing, and you could have a higher level API for saying those things. Yeah. One thing I was thinking about is there is, for example, the Tailwind, UI, uh, Tailwind CSS definition of flex and flex row and flex call. And I was thinking, well, why don't flex row and flex call just imply display flex? And it, once you use that, why even flex dash row? Why not just row and call? And then you start to have more similar APIs between LUI and uh, Tailwind. Yeah, Tailwind already tries to abstract those things to a certain extent. So it's just taking it a step further. So one thing that we didn't mention, I think, is that because you now have functions or constants to define your CSS, you can use your editor to autocomplete those uh, definitions, right? So you can do a tag, uh, square brackets, tailwind dots, and then uh, it gives you autocompletion for saying background red 500 or something. Yes, that's true. And there's even uh, tooling in, uh, there is tooling for Tailwind CSS in general to give you autocomplete when you're writing a string and you're starting with something that looks like a Tailwind class. With this project, you don't need another uh, tool which will need to understand Elm code, but instead use the normal Elm tooling. 
And one thing, one other thing I haven't talked about too much in public yet is I've added documentation generation to the Tailwind modules tool. So you can now generate document or doc comments together with your uh, generated code, which will include the CSS uh, that was consumed to generate these definitions. So when you hover over a Tailwind, generated Tailwind utility class, constant, <laughs> you will... Uh, in your tooling, if you have uh, tooling installed, Elm tooling installed, uh, we'll see in its documentation what CSS was consumed for generating this and in essence will apply when you use this class or this constant. Nice. Well, I hope that doesn't make the, the file much, much bigger. <laughs> it does. In fact, it ah. does, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but uh, I hope in the future it's uh, going to become smaller anyway with less and less definitions. Do you know how many definitions you create with your generation at the moment? I don't know. It depends. Uh, it depends a lot on your Tailwind configuration. So, for example, do you have dark mode on or off? Or do you have variance on or off? Uh, I don't know what the values are right now for oh, the I, default. I just checked, I just checked and it's about 3,600 for the Elm default Tailwind yeah. models. Yeah, so, so it's a lot of definitions right still now. Still quite a lot. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Wait, is that lines of code or, or number of definitions? Number, number of, of definitions. definitions. Really? It's it's going to become a lot smaller when you extract out the colors because that the permutations for the colors is a lot. Yes. Also, just if you reduce your palette, so to, to reiterate something we talked about earlier, when you go to your Tailwind configuration file, you can define your custom palette, which is a best practice. You, you, you should do that. And when you do that, it's going to reduce the number of permutations by quite a bit. You can even half it if you only define mm -hmm. a dark mode. Yeah. And if you, I mean, the number of built-in color variations is like, like 30 or 40 or something, right? So if you, if you have like eight colors instead, then you've drastically reduced the number of defined top-level values. And I imagine you could do the same thing with um, spacing too. Is that something you're thinking about? Yeah, exactly. Uh, both cool. of these things. And I think spacing might even have way more. Um, yes, I guess, effect or an even more drastic effect. Because it applies in more places. Yes. So it has the permutation, like the combinatoric explosion in more places. Yes. But I still have to think about how to best do this. It's more straightforward with colors than with spacing because then you're thinking about, hmm, should you introduce an int argument to your definitions or will you generate some kind of type uh, which encapsulates all of the possible spacings to reduce the set of them you can pass to your definition because i think this is a feature of uh, tailwind css but absolutely yeah having it be a restricted palette is like a huge feature and also like the the tailwind team in um in tailwind itself and in the the paid pro tailwind ui like library of templates they've put so much thought into the designs they've done so much research and and tweaked things and it's very reliable in terms you know just like should the you know the default font size be 16 pixels and then should you have like 14 or 12 pixels for certain you know text around forms and things like that and they really put so much thought into the spacing and the font sizes and all these things so the palette is like one of the most compelling features of using tailwind absolutely and one thing i really like when working with tailwind is that it's written by people who've do who've done a lot of uh, html and css development and design so i think the two hats of tailwind css are are like the 
founders, I guess, were Adam Waithen and Stephen Schauger. And they also wrote a book, which I read and really, really uh, recommend this uh, Refactoring UI. So this was something for me as a mostly programmer, uh, which would inspire me to try more design and to get better at visually making things aesthetically pleasing. So what what are some best practices when using Elm Tailwind modules. We talked about like narrowing down your palette in your Tailwind configuration to reduce the, you know, color palette that you're using. You know, you can um, reduce the the breakpoints if you don't use all of the breakpoints, for example. There are some things like that that just sort of constrain things to help you build um, more consistent designs. What, what other best practices do you think help you you know, build build nice designs and, and nice code using Elm Tailwind modules. Yeah, one other thing, and I think I mentioned it, the command line interface will also tell you, is uh, just turn off your variants and completely use uh, Elm CSS for that. And I mentioned it, order your breakpoints accordingly, otherwise they don't apply. And then there's like... It'd be a question of uh, what imports you use, I guess. So I personally have a an interesting way of uh, using the Tail Modules project and writing HTML code uh, myself in Elm, which is I usually write modules which read like HTML templates. They don't contain any logic. Um, the most complicated thing it contains is maybe list.map. Um, even that's very rarely. And other than that, it's also very light on dependencies. And these modules only depend on HTML. So the HTML.style module, the HTML.style.attributes module, the Tailwind modules, and maybe an icon set and stuff like that, but not on actual logic code. And the types are mostly HTML and attributes, which might even get passed in or passed out. So it's basically all, um, everything is like uh, with HTML templates and the outside code then has logic to use it. And what I end up doing in these uh, modules to make them more readable, and that's the whole point for them uh, in the first place, is I use explicit imports, which is very unconventional in Elm. Do you mean like unqualified imports? Yes. Un- un- like exposing... Uh, dot dot kind of oh yeah yeah not explicit uh yeah i'm using the exposing dot dot imports Mm -hmm. exactly and (laughs) i see jeroen (laughs) shaking his head at me (laughs) getting him the stink eye (laughs) (laughs) jeroen jeroen is the personification of elm review telling you i think you might want to fix this yeah i I don't even have an elm review rule for that (laughs) (laughs) it's so uncommon but yeah it's just the gaze Oh yes, no! Actually, I do have a I do have a rule for that. <laughs> I actually have one that fixes it. <laughs> Just use that. All right. Yeah. So uh, I like doing that because it reads more similarly to, for example, the Tailwind UI um, templates that you see. And I think if you really restrict yourself to only using HTML and CSS in those template modules, you don't start to have this question of well, is this definition defined in this module or in another module or where is it defined? But you really can, you should, or you mostly know like section is an HTML element and you see there's uh, maybe an MX underscore auto in there and you see, yes, this is a Tailwind class. And so these, there's less of an issue with that there. It is 
still something unconventional. I see that, but I, I think there's even more value behind separating uh, these kind of uh, template classes from the rest of the um, code. And I think this is the biggest thing maybe, but yeah, this is how I like to work with it. I haven't developed any other best practices yet, and I would say this is a developed best practice yet at all. So basically what you're just doing is you're uh, defining reusable function, view functions. Yes. Uh, that you just, yeah, you can compose them together. I think of them like, I think in React, people usually like to uh, split their React components into presentational components and functional. No, I don't know what the other one was. I remember smart and dumb components. Uh, I think they renamed it, but all right, presentational and may, uh, may, yeah. logic-based. So, so, I don't know. Yeah, basically, I try to do like some kind of similar splitting where I have these modules which have no logic and only care about your HTML and CSS um, fitting in nicely together with each other. Yeah, I definitely like that idea a lot. As as far as like the unqualified imports, uh, like I don't have any problem with people doing that. But for my own personal preferences, I really like auto-completion. And it's just like inseparable from my workflow. I, I Like my brain uh, will cease to function if I don't have that feedback mechanism at play. And so I just write like module name dot. That's how I write code. And my brain would stop working if I didn't have that. So, you know, for that reason, I might like do a short import alias or something like that in that context. But otherwise, I think the idea of um, separating, you know, these nice like view helper modules is a really nice pattern. And like one one thing I want to add to that is that it can be really helpful. Like in the object oriented space, people talk about these view objects. I'll post a link that talks about that. I think it's a nice pattern that applies in functional programming as well, which is having like the logic for presentational aspects of like, how do you present, given a user data object, how do you present that user's name? How do you present, you know, all, all these different strings that you need? And at that point, you build up this data type, maybe just a record with a bunch of fields that are pretty much strings, right? And one of the cool things about that is if you're doing unit testing, now you can have a unit test that doesn't pull in HTML to test your views. You can test those view you know, little records. And you can have a nice decoupled thing that has the presentational elements and gives you all the little bits of data that you need. And then you can have kind of dumb view helpers that don't have to have all the knowledge of how to, how to build that up. So that, that's one pattern that I think can be helpful for, for using that approach. Yeah, that sounds nice. It's, it sounds really similar to what ends up happening in uh, this kind of way of working. That, that's what I was imagining, that that's, yeah. that's something that you, you naturally are going to do if you're going to have these dumb things that basically just use list.map and are otherwise dumb. Another uh, question I had is, do you, um, do you use or can you use AddApply with Elm Tailwind modules? And would you, would you even want to or would you use Elm abstractions to, do, to get that effect? Oh, yeah, right. This gets back to another best practice, I guess. You can use AddApply. So for those that don't know, AddApply is something that a kind of syntax in CSS, which gets introduced when you use Tailwind CSS. Yeah, it's like a special Tailwind directive for like smushing together utility classes for like AddApply and you create a button that has this background and this hover 
class and whatever. Exactly. And the best practice in our case would then be don't use it, just define these things in your Elm land. But it also depends very much on your use case, unfortunately, uh, because some teams, for example, use the same CSS and Tailwind configuration um, that they use for other pages, which would, for example, be statically rendered Next.js, for example. And then they end up not, well, being able to import these Elm definitions. So it's also about um, interoperability there. So I guess if you can, it's best to use um, the Elm CSS definitions and use it within uh, your Elm code because it's uh, much easier and less prone to maybe some mistakes uh, in translation uh, when generating the Elm code if you had used it in CSS directory. But it is possible. And yeah, it is possible to use add apply in your CSS and have it generate some custom Elm code. Yeah, I sort of had a similar philosophy with Elm GraphQL, which was like as much as I could do with Elm high-level abstractions, I would prefer that over GraphQL abstractions, you know? So like GraphQL has, uh, has this notion of variables that you can pass parameters into things. But Elm has parameters and functions. So, you know, prefer using those over sort of GraphQL domain concepts when possible uh, because it becomes like a more high-level abstraction that's more idiomatic to Elm. And, and you can leverage all the features, like, you know, you can refactor refactoring tools in your IDE and you can refactor static analysis tools like Elm Review to help you analyze dead code. And, um, you know, it, it just becomes a really nice experience. And also, it's less moving parts. So when you're using a generator, you would rather, and you can like not use it instead. That's one less moving part in that case. So it's always what I recommend. The best code is the code that was never written, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that it's just CSS.hover instead of generating a special Tailwind one because you could just compose those together. I love how you say the, the, the best code is the one that has not been written and you generate a giant file with 2,600 <laughs> functions. I'm super guilty. <laughs> yeah. Another thing, like when, when working with Tailwind, I, I, I believe a lot of people who work with Tailwind have this experience that they rely heavily on the docs and on Tailwind UI in particular. It's a paid product, but if you use Tailwind a lot, it's so helpful. It's like my Bible for, because it, the, the cool thing about it is it gives you these templates, but it's not like bootstrap templates where it sort of gives you a style where it's like a dark, dark template or a light template. It's like a starter point that you just tweak as needed. And so you can build off of it and turn it into something. It, it like not every Tailwind site looks the same. Whereas with like Twitter bootstrap, every site looks the same. And then maybe you can tell that something uses a particular Twitter bootstrap template, but it just changes the color scheme and fonts. Do we have to mention that we were not sponsored or? I know we maybe, or maybe we should just ask them, you know, to retroactively sponsor us. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just super handy is using those templates and then you can tweak them and make it look like it's something you built, a customized thing, not like it's not immediately recognizable because you can turn it into your own look and feel. But when you do that, you end up with all this boilerplate code because they repeat things constantly because it's just HTML. So you'll have like, you know, if you copy paste one of their navbar examples, then you'll have like, you know, an unordered list of list items 
with like 10 list items for all the nav bar content. And the same Tailwind CSS classes are applied to all of the unselected nav bar elements. And then the current page that's on has a specific one because it's not like a JavaScript framework, it's just HTML. So then you have to sort of reverse engineer pulling that up into abstractions. So that's another best practice for people to keep in mind is I would say like start with just getting that template on the page and then reverse engineer it through refactoring. Like you can listen to our Elm Radio incremental steps episode. And that's the approach I would recommend for incrementally refactoring to pull up those abstractions. But don't try to do that like at the same time to refactor and extract those abstractions as you're getting your layout working. Get it like rendering and then little by little extract out parameters and create abstractions. I've felt that I wanted to abstract things also very often. I was thinking, hey, I've used the same parts of uh, the same set of Tailwind UI classes in multiple places. Maybe I should uh, abstract it. But it should be really painfully aware that you have to abstract this um, when you're doing this. So in the end, I often ended up still switching some parts and then they don't match up exactly and abstracting gets hard. But yeah, starting from these concrete examples especially in tailwind ui which is great it's uh, really useful and helpful and then once it really gets painful and you really think this gets repeated a lot then you can uh, start abstracting and uh, grouping for example some css utility class right that's a great point i think um adam wathen talks about this a lot like on his on full stack radio his podcast he it's cool because you can sort of get into his brain a little bit and hear the way he thinks about these things. And so uh, I'll post a few links in the show notes to some episodes where he talks about the philosophy behind Tailwind CSS. But one thing that comes up often is he talks about how people have this fear of, wait a minute, all these utility classes in line in my HTML, it's going to be a terrible experience. And he's like, well, I mean, if you have like 15 utility classes on your nav bar, but the nav bar is the only one that has that specific set of 15 utility classes, it's fine. You don't need to abstract that. And people at first are horrified and they're like, surely I'm, I have to abstract this. But he's like, well, if that's the one place it shows up, it's abstracted in this night. You know, maybe you have a React component or, you know, an Elm module or whatever for your nav bar that abstracts that. That's fine. Just leave it there with those 15 uh, Tailwind utilities in line. It's perfectly fine. And I think Tailwind CSS land, lots of people have a similar reaction to the at apply functionality. And they ask like, when should I start using at apply and like making my own, for example, button class? And uh, the answers are very similar and they're all like, wait it, wait for it. Just leave it like it is and do it as late as you can. As And it really, uh, most people I think um, try to abstract to it early and that applies to at apply or grouping css talent utilities with elm css well great stuff i uh i think we've given people a lot to chew on here and thank you again for building this really lovely tool it's uh it's been delightful to use i've, I've enjoyed it quite a bit thank you so philip how should people get started with the elm tailwind modules i think the best way would be to i think it it depends uh it depends on whether okay 
So there's two kinds of people who, I guess, want to use untailed modules. One is the uh, the people who are using, who've been using other Tailwind and Elm things before and want to switch to this, um, or who have only been using plain Tailwind CSS and Elm and want to switch to this. And there's one kinds of people who, for example, at work have been using Tailwind CSS before and want to switch to something with more auto-completion, more type safety, maybe. <laughs> And there's the other uh, camp with people who want to try out Tailwind CSS and love Elm. And for the second crowd, I would suggest using uh, Elm default Tailwind modules, which is the Elm package with the generated code with the default Tailwind configuration. So then you can get a feel for how Tailwind itself feels and don't have to use any JavaScript and fiddle with bundling and NPM or anything like that. Um, you don't even have to use NPM install. You just install this uh, package. And later you can switch to the code generator itself and write your own Tailwind config once you want to use your own colors or some custom fonts, things like that. And for everyone else who's already accustomed to um, Tailwind CSS and maybe has their own, already has their own Tailwind configuration file, uh, just check out the readme uh, on GitHub. It explains how to use the command line interface tool. And if you have a really, really advanced use case, you might even use the Node API. So how to get started really depends on who you are. I try to <laughs> have <laughs> include like everyone, uh, include people who want to get started as quickly as possible. And I want to include companies who have complicated structures with uh, their own Tailwind configurations and their own added CSS and post CSS configurations and things like that. Um, it's hard to like get both under the same. How to, it's hard to do your best for both. But I guess the best starting point is always the readme and the GitHub project. Do you think that an incremental upgrade would work well for people who are already using the regular style of Tailwind with Tailwind classes in their Elm code? Using Elm HTML, you mean? Oh, good point. I guess... Aha, that's interesting. Right. So if you're using Elm HTML, you would first have to switch to Elm CSS, which you could do, but... Uh, and I mean, it's a drop-in replacement, so you basically change your imports to change from elm html to elm css because it's it's a superset of the api yeah that's a good point i think uh elm css is quite it's quite possible to use to introduce elm css incrementally so there's like from unstyled and to yeah. unstyled so you can go uh, from the elm css world into the normal elm slash html world and the other way around. So I guess the best way for people who have lots of Elm slash HTML code would be to add the drop-in replacement module by module. Right. Starting at the leaves. Exactly. Starting at the leaves. In the meantime, you'll have lots more generated code, but in the end, you hopefully have a have the normal amount of code again. Right. And you should be able to take like, you know, an Elm CSS element that is using like the class syntax to do Tailwind classes and then take that one HTML element that's in Elm CSS and change that to use uh, Elm Tailwind syntax, right? Yes. Elm Tailwind modules, yeah. So incremental upgrades would probably be the way to go. Uh, you, you could probably have some kind of tool, maybe using Elm Review or mm -hmm. Elm, yeah. uh, Elm HTML to 
elmcss.com <laughs> uh, right, to, right. to help you with that. I did think about the the possibility of having like a a transformer that would allow you to to turn class names um, as an Elm review rule into Tailwind using the parsing logic that I have. The tricky thing is if you have a mixture of classes that don't represent classes that don't represent Tailwind and classes that do represent Tailwind, then it can get a little bit messy uh, because you don't know how to separate them. But that's maybe a topic for another day. But great, so uh, so so try out the default package, which is published on the package repository, Elm default Tailwind modules. Link, find the link in the show notes. Check out the README. Check out html2elm.com, perhaps. Give that a try. And Philip, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks again for having me. It was lots of fun. Likewise. And Jeroen, I'll talk to you next time. See you next time.